0: This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Progressive prosecutors have been pushing for criminal justice reform for a while now, seeking to end mass incarceration, to deal with police misconduct and focus resources on protecting the public from serious and violent crime. Starting with Larry Krasner in Philadelphia in 2017, then Chesa Boudin in San Francisco in 2019, and then George Gascon in Los Angeles in 2020, also Chicago, Detroit, now several other places, Progressive prosecutors have won election defeating traditional law and order prosecutors across the country. Of course, the defeated law and order forces have been pushing back. Larry Krasner won re-election, but in Los Angeles, George Gascon is the target right now of a recall campaign, which has a deadline of July 6th to turn in 560,000 signatures needed to get recall on the ballot in November. And right now in San Francisco, opponents of Chesa Boudin collected enough signatures to force a recall vote on June 7th. Chesa Boudin joins us now. He's the elected district attorney of San Francisco City and County. He's also a contributor to The Nation magazine. The last time he was here, we talked about children growing up with parents in prison. He was one of them. Chesa Boudin, welcome back.
1: Good to be with you, John. Thanks for having me.
0: I was sorry to see that your mother, Kathy Boudin, died on May 1st. She was a big figure in my life and a lot of other people of our generation. We were about the same age. We both grew up in the 60s. We were both in Students for a Democratic Society. At the end of the 60s, she joined the Weather Underground and ended up serving 22 years in prison. You were just over a year old at the time of her trial. In prison... She transformed herself in a powerful and moving way. And she was released in 2003. Could you just say a few words about her life, her political ideas, and her transformation?
1: Well, John, obviously, um, I can say the same thing you can. My mother loomed large in my life as well <laughs> as she did, and apparently many other people's. Uh, she was not just uh, the mother who brought me into the world, kicking and screaming, Um, She was not just um, the person who I came to love the way that sons love their mothers. She was also someone who was really inspirational to me and to countless others, because like all of us, she made mistakes. She was human and she was fallible. And in her case, the mistakes she made were really, really costly Uh, to her, to me, to our family. Yes. But more importantly, to the lives of the three men who were killed in the crime for which she ended up serving 22 years in prison. And she took lessons from that tragedy and from those mistakes, lessons that didn't change her fundamental values or the way she interacted with the people closest to her, but that changed the tactics she was willing to use and the strategy and grounded her in humanism and nonviolence. And almost immediately after she landed in state prison, she began dedicating herself to the betterment of her community and of herself. She was the first woman in the history of the state of New York to earn her master's degree while in prison. She co-founded and co-led a AIDS education group. that was a peer taught group by other incarcerated women and became a national model for preventing the spread of HIV AIDS at a time when that disease was a death sentence. And she led bilingual literacy classes for many of the other women incarcerated who couldn't even read or write at the time of their incarceration. And she also led parenting programs to help other women in prison find ways to show the love for their children, even from the distance that their incarceration created. When my mom was released in 2003, I I had just graduated from college. And I was heading off to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship and beginning my life, uh, secondary educational life. And I don't think either one of us could have predicted, despite the the really strong relationship we had built during her years of incarceration, I don't think either one of us could have predicted all of the ways in which our relationship would grow and strengthen over the time um, since she was released, particularly given how hard she was working uh, during that period. She earned her doctoral degree from Columbia. She worked at Roosevelt St. Luke's Hospital, uh, establishing a medical program for people coming home from prison who had HIV AIDS and other uh, very serious diseases and needed healthcare in the community. Um, And she ultimately went on to found and co-direct the Center for Justice at Columbia University and other groups like the Release Aging uh, Prisoners on Parole Project. Um, rap, as it's known. She was a force of nature. And one of the things that everybody says about her, people who only met her once, who've been reaching out to me uh, over the days since she died, is that she was the most intense listener people have ever met. She cared and was interested in learning from and hearing from people she met from all walks of life. Um, She had an ability to convey that, that interest and to really be present and listening in an era when most of us are lost in our own train of thoughts or uh, faces buried in our telephone or computer screens. As her son, of course, it was all the all the more so. She would drop everything every time I called. Uh, she was absolutely and totally committed to being an unconditionally loving and supportive mother to me, uh, mother-in-law to my wife, and for the few months that they overlapped on this planet, to my son, her only grandson. If our
0: listeners want to find out more about Kathy Boudin, The Nation has published a piece by Jeff Jones and Eleanor Stein, and another one by Elizabeth Gaines. Well, let's talk about the movement to elect progressive prosecutors. Remind us about the ideas behind this movement, ideas you share with Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, George Gascon in LA, and several of the other Elected colleagues of yours.
1: To understand the progressive prosecutor movement, you have to understand what it's a movement in response to or or what the alternatives are. And so the tough on crime rhetoric that has so defined district attorney's offices and campaigns for well over 100 years in this country is rhetoric that basically focuses the resources of the district attorney on sending as many people to prison for as long as possible, usually poor people of color. And it's policies and practices that led us to a system known as mass incarceration. For folks who aren't familiar with that term, it's a term that describes the reality of the United States locking up more people than any other country in the history of the planet. It's an approach that has not made our communities safer. It's failed to rehabilitate people who commit crimes. It has failed to treat victims like human beings. And to provide services and supports for survivors of crime. And it's a system that has so over invested in law enforcement and jails and prisons that it's bankrupted local governments of the resources that are needed to actually prevent crimes proactively education, housing, jobs, healthcare, the things that we know are necessary to have safe and vibrant communities. And so the progressive prosecutor movement is a response to that failure in which. Folks like myself and the others you've mentioned, Kim Fox in Chicago, Kim Gardner in St. Louis, Rachel Rollins in Boston, and more across the country have run for the Office of District Attorney with a specific commitment to reduce mass incarceration, to start focusing resources on treatment and addressing root causes of crime rather than simply punishment and vindictive justice, to expand restorative justice instead of punitive justice. It's a movement that recognizes To have integrity, to have public trust, prosecutors must not only prosecute the poor people arrested for shoplifting or for selling drugs, but we must also prosecute police when they use excessive force. We must also prosecute corporate crooks who steal wages from their employees. We must also go after the manufacturers of guns that are being used to commit violent crimes in our communities. In other words, we need to build a system of justice that works for everybody, not just the wealthy and well-connected.
0: And let's talk about San Francisco. Uh, How have you done on fulfilling the promises you made to the voters who elected you?
1: It's been a difficult uh, two years in office. Just a couple months after I was sworn in, the COVID pandemic shut down our city, shut me out of my office, and reduced our courts to about 10% of their normal capacity. Since then, I faced two separate recall attempts, one of which is is still pending as we talk today. So we've had a lot of obstacles we never could have predicted. But despite all that, uh, I'm really proud of the work my office has done uh, during the first half of my first term in office. Let me give you a few examples of the ways in which we've tried to fulfill our promises to voters. You know, We talked about ending mass incarceration. And sure enough, in my first year, we managed to close one part of our county jail. We also managed to reduce the number of kids in our juvenile detention facility by about 70% from peak to trough. And the way we made those jail reductions was through really intentional decisions about the individuals incarcerated. Look, we had high level policies, ending cash bail, creating an independent innocence commission to exonerate people who've been wrongfully convicted, resentencing people who'd been in prison far longer than public safety required. And and that work has resulted in uh, resentencing nearly 70 individuals. Uh, But it was also a detail-oriented approach to every single individual person housed in our county jail, where we took seriously the mantra that jail should be a last resort, not a primary response to social problems. So I wanna just give you one example of the ways in which during the COVID pandemic, at a time when we didn't have a vaccine, when we didn't understand fully what the implications of the disease were, but we knew it was deadly. And we heard from medical experts in jail health services across the country that jails and prisons created the perfect conditions for the deadly spread of COVID-19. Well, our jail medical staff identified for us a young woman serving a county jail sentence for her first ever conviction, a misdemeanor property crime. And they told us that she was pregnant and it was a high risk pregnancy. So we looked at the case, we looked at the history, we worked with our re-entry partners and we found a residential prenatal facility that was willing to take this young woman in. We asked the judge to reduce her sentence to time served and we got her transported directly from the jail to the prenatal facility where she stayed the course, she stayed sober. She graduated from the program and she gave birth to a healthy baby that I'm proud to tell you she is still a loving, caring mother for. It's that kind of approach, case by case, individual human beings, where we identified folks who didn't need to be in the jail. And in fact, we were making San Francisco safer by getting her out of the jail and into the place that she and that child in her belly needed to be. We also followed through on our commitment to expand services for victims. I wanna give you a few examples of that. Every single budget that I've ever submitted to the mayor and our board of supervisors has asked for more money for victim services. And though we haven't ever gotten everything we asked for, we've made really significant progress. We started a pilot program to reimburse small businesses that were being vandalized or having their windows broken during the pandemic. That's Pilot was so successful, it's now a citywide operation. We also recognize the need to increase language access, particularly for San Francisco's diverse immigrant communities in our Asian American Pacific Islander communities. I hired and promoted to the head of victim services, the first ever Chinese American head of San Francisco DA victim services. And we increased the number of Chinese speaking staff in our office by more than 500% during this time period. We also recognize that when victims of crime go to court, all too often, traditional district attorneys treat them like pieces of evidence to help secure a criminal conviction. They only give interpreters when the person is testifying as evidence. But we know that many victims of crime want to understand the proceedings. They wanna know what's happening in the case, what arguments are being made, what rulings the judge is handing down. And so we implemented a policy, the first in the state, that requires my team to request court certified interpreters to assist any victim or witness while they're observing court proceedings in their case. And we didn't stop there. At the beginning of the pandemic, we recognized that domestic violence survivors were being forced to shelter in place with their abusers. And so we joined forces with Airbnb and with the, the, the City Hall and with other agencies around the state to create short, medium and long-term housing opportunities so that victims of domestic violence and their children could find safe haven during the pandemic. We also recognize that one of the reasons many victims, especially in cases like sexual assault, don't come forward and cooperate with law enforcement is because they don't trust police or prosecutors or the process to protect them and their privacy. And in fact, we identified a situation, shocking, horrifying, where the San Francisco Police Department crime lab was storing the DNA profile of sexual assault survivors without their consent in a database that was used for investigations, totally unrelated mm-hmm. to the sexual assault for which they had submitted their bodies to such a intense investigative, intrusive investigative process. And we, rose, we raised awareness about that practice. We demanded change. We dismissed the case against the victim of sexual assault whose DNA was being used against her. And we sponsored state legislation in Sacramento that will prohibit any law enforcement agency from across the state from ever using victims' DNA against them. We want to send a loud and clear message to survivors of crime, especially violent crime. We see you, we hear you, we stand with you, and we will protect your privacy. The other core promise we we made was to expand accountability for those in power, to to enforce the laws equally. And, And look, in some ways, this was the most radical promise that I made to voters. Um, It shouldn't be because it's enshrined in our country's founding documents. It's chiseled in stone above most courthouses in America. And yet, for generations, those in power have been able to commit crimes and violate the law with impunity. So we filed the first ever homicide charges against a San Francisco Police Department officer who, while on duty, shot and killed an unarmed Black man. And we took to trial the first ever excessive force case against a different San Francisco police officer for using a baton to break the bones of an unarmed black man. And we filed another case, homicide charges, against a police officer who shot and killed an unarmed black man on the steps of his own home. It's that kind of work, holding police accountable. The lawsuit we filed against ghost gun manufacturers, the companies profiting off of shipping illegal firearms into our communities, designed to be used in crimes. The work we've done filing political corruption cases against those in government who abuse the public trust. The work we've done in our worker protection unit has filed landmark lawsuits against gig economy companies whose entire business model is based on stealing from their employees and from taxpayers systematically misclassifying people so that they don't have to pay minimum wage, workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, paid sick leave, or provide PPE to people working through the pandemic. The work we're doing to promote public safety and to actually hold those in power to account has made some very powerful people angry. Some people with deep pockets, the police unions, the the billionaires in their boardrooms of Silicon Valley gig economy companies. And those folks are, are used to and in fact demand impunity when they violate the law, but not on my watch.
0: We have to talk about crime rates. The challenge to you in here in L.A. focuses on crime rates, which officially have been going up. Your opponents say you are responsible for that. Let's talk about crime rates.
1: Sure. Well, you know, one thing about crime rates is they change day to day. There's lots of different ways to measure them, um, and there's lots of different categories of crime. So, you know, let me put it this way. In the two and a bit years I've been in office, the number of reported crimes in San Francisco has declined. There have been 26,000 fewer reported crimes during the time I've been in office than compared to the exact same time period prior to my administration. The overall rate of reported crimes like rape is down 47%, robbery down 26%, assault down nearly 10% during the time I've been in office. Overall property crime is also down. Um, We've seen a massive decline in theft crimes during the period I've been in office, a 31% decline in reported thefts, comparing the time I've been in office with the exact same time period before my administration. But those statistics don't mean anything to someone who themselves has been a victim of crime or to someone who's seen so many videos of crime on Twitter and next door or local news that they're living in fear. And I wanna be crystal clear here, my job, my goal, the work I and my office do all day, every day is to keep San Francisco safe and to make sure that everybody is safe and also feels safe in their home, in their neighborhood and in our city. And until that's done, It doesn't matter what the data shows. We've got work to do. We need members of our community to feel safe. And that means we've got to do a more effective job communicating. We've got to do a more effective job holding people who commit crimes accountable. We've got to do a more effective job supporting victims of crime, and we've got to continue to innovate and be creative in the policies and the practices and the cases we bring that actually prevent crime from occurring in the first place.
0: And if our listeners want to find out more about your work, uh, in your campaign, uh, where can they go?
1: A great place to start is chesaboudin.com. That's C-H-E-S-A-B-O-U-D-I-N.com. We've got a long list of our achievements, of uh, the endorsers who are opposing this recall, including the San Francisco Democratic Party, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Bay Area Reporter, the Green Party, the ACLU, the Sierra Club, the San Francisco Labor Council, the Nurses Union, the Teachers Union, the City College teachers union. We encourage people to look at the facts and look at the data and evaluate the work we've actually done and the circumstances in which we've been forced to do it. I know I and my office have a massive, massive job ahead of us. San Francisco has, like so many parts of this country, been relying on a failed approach to responding to crime and trying to promote safety. It took decades to build up the system of mass incarceration. I've only had two years to try and fix it. We've got work to do, and I'm committed to getting the job done for San Francisco.
0: Jason Boudin is the elected district attorney of San Francisco. He's up for recall next month. Chesa, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today.
1: Thank you, John. Good to speak with you.